Welcome back to another episode of the Touring Rabbit Holes podcast. I'm very, very excited. We are doing something different today. I have a special guest who I get to introduce, but also uh, the topic that we're doing today is something more in the realm of cognitive science. We have been uh, looking at a paper that Alex wrote um, called The Limits of Mathematics for Mortals and Immortals. We're taking a break from that, and we're doing something much more about human behavior. So I'm pretty excited. Are you excited about this episode, Alex? Definitely. Awesome. I'm glad to have a guest, our guest here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, with Without further ado, um, I'd like to talk about our guest. I, our guest. I brought along my friend Shani. Uh, she, I'm considering. Say that again. I'm considering her the subject matter expert for this episode. She has a background in marketing, and she also spent a long. She spent a lot of years in Germany, and she experienced culture there that is very different than things here, uh, including how they handle education about. Oh gosh, things like racism and and bias and and their history. So she has a lot to share with us today. How are you doing, Shani? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Gabe and Alex. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Before we dive in, I'd like to do you know a little bit of an interview with you. But okay. before we do that, I want to talk about what will be on today's episode because as always, every one of our episodes is based on. Um, uh, um, journals and and documents and things like that so for today i started this episode with a document that was shared by pbs newshour on facebook it was also shared by uh, nova and i'll go ahead and pull that document up it's a document on implicit racism uh, the document is about a an implicit i'm sorry and let me say that again implicit bias the document is about a test uh, that has been developed in the last 20 years on um, on assessing whether or not somebody has an implicit bias. It's a, it's a long interview with the creator of that test. Uh, I also have some documents that um, uh, critique that test and talk about the pros and the cons of it. Um, before we get to, to those as well, well, I should also say our third document is, is, a, is the Wikipedia page on that test as well. It's a phenomenal uh, Wikipedia page. They sometimes are the creators of Wikipedia articles do a really great job from time to time uh, of uh, summarizing uh, all kinds of uh, literature. And for that reason, this uh, for that reason, I rely heavily on that on that document for on that page for this episode. Um, Alrighty, so before we begin, I'd like to uh, talk with uh, with you, Shani, a little bit about your background, both in marketing as sure. well as your time in, in uh, Germany. Um, we um, tell us a little bit about what you did for a job and what you're still doing for a job. Well, um, I studied psychology, and uh, that made me interested in social constructionism. And social constructionism, obviously, is when we take everything in our environment, and that helps us uh, socialize ourselves. And so um, one of the things is um, I am a heavyset woman, and I always felt like uh, companies, especially broadcasting, were talking top-down and would tell me what I needed to buy to feel better about myself. And um, I realized that we could bring this kind of empowerment movement into uh, advertising and because social advertising is more of an eye-to-eye thing and not top-down. So I realized that we could come from an empowerment point of view and show uh, our, our potential clientele what they uh, could be doing to uh, make themselves feel better, but that they didn't need to buy our product, that they were already okay. And by feeling okay and empowered, then they would in turn buy the product. And a lot of the brands were on board about this. Very cool. Very cool. How many years, um, for how many years have you worked in advertising? Six. Okay, very good. And uh, you worked in Germany. Um, 
Wow. So, so you worked for, I guess we can't really name any of the clients on this. Probably. No, but yeah. you know, again, just major clients and, uh, it, it was a lot of fun because, uh, they're international brands, but all, obviously also, uh, it was German based. So mm. that was quite a challenge in itself to also get into the European and German market mindset as well. And actually on that note, I have a question about your experience specifically advertising in Germany. I've actually, I've been quite a fan of a lot of the advertising in, in um, America. I love the attempts at humor, especially mm-hmm. in things like insurance. I think that was brilliant. I think Geico started it with um, the Geico Gecko. But then every insurance company, it seems, has jumped on board <laughs> yes. with Flow from, um, I'm sorry, what's, what's Flow's, uh, I should know this. Um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking here. I'll, I'll get back on that. Check the comment section. I'll, I'll remember. <laughs> but, but you know, Allstate uh, has mayhem. I was actually mayhem for Halloween a couple of years ago. I remember yeah. you saying something about that. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. So, uh, it, you know, I, I thought the, the attempt at using humor to, to sell insurance, which is kind of a bit of a dry topic. Well, perhaps some would consider it dry. I'm sure there are those who are passionate about insurance and how it works, but some may consider it dry. So I thought it was really cool. So... Uh, in Germany, have you experienced like uh, a difference in what works for advertising or how they go about it? Yeah, I, I believe that it seems to me, at least, uh, again, this is coming from my point of view, that um, it was more of an authenticity. So, uh, yes, humor works. And again, that helps bring uh, the brand to be top of mind when you remember ge- the gecko, you remember Geico. And, uh, but on the other side, um, at least in social advertising, we were going for more of an authentic approach. And so it wasn't just they call it not just storytelling but story doing mm-hmm. oh, okay very cool very cool so um i have a, a, a question as well about um about how people act and and uh appearances basically snap judgment if you don't mind i want to bring up something that we talked about a long time ago certainly you had told me um first of all i've always said i love your hair it's awesome it's <laughs> very you. very expressive once upon a time you were telling me that you noticed a difference uh based on your hair like if it was a darker color or before you dye it what would you call the, the current color it's um, i would say it's pink it's pink okay yeah. before it's pink you dye it blonde and then you dye it pink yes. right and you have experienced yourself a difference in how you are treated based on your hair color yes yeah. i noticed that i turn more heads when i'm blonde and um, I, you know, of course, there's the blondes have more fun type saying, but I wonder if it has to do with actual, you know, uh, the fact that it's brighter and yeah. it actually attracts attention because it's brighter. And when I have darker hair, it feels like I do kind of blend in a little bit more and I don't get the same looks or notice um, um, when I'm, of course, when I have pink hair, I'm definitely noticed. And, uh, you know, there's the subtle nods from other people that maybe have a little bit of an edge to them as well. Mm-hmm. So... Oh, interesting. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And actually, obviously the reason why that's the case, that's a little bit harder to pin down, but, but there's certainly a noticeable difference in, in attention. So that's something I, I definitely wanted to bring up uh, for, for um, today. Now, before we get into the papers that we're going to talk about, I also wanted to talk about your experience in Germany, specifically with how they address some of the issues in their past. Obviously, um, everyone here uh, knows about um, the history of Germany with, oh gosh, in the 1930s and 40s with Nazi Germany and with the Holocaust. Um, since you've lived in Germany, uh, what was your experience like uh, with respect to how, how they address that, how they teach it, and, and what role it plays in, in the uh, social consciousness of Germany 
at this point? And I, I realize that's a very sensitive question. Yes. Um, I just wanted to also address our political climate right now and just say that I do believe that this is all from my point of view, and we're discussing this, but discursive psychology also says that being able to discuss these things is um, the building uh, or the stepping stone in building you know, a different mental framework and having better, um, you know, also uh, opening us up to uh, seeing our biases and, and realizing you know, even privilege and so right now I feel that it is not my turn to speak. And so when I'm speaking right now, it, I feel that it's, it's, we're just opening up the discourse, mm -hmm. but, um, I, I hope that this reaches the right people to start understanding and going down the rabbit holes that they need to go down <laughs> and, yes. um, and try on different, uh, points of view and, and see, uh, maybe, uh, a different perspective. And mm -hmm. so again, in Germany, this was from my point of view. And I, I, I do feel of course, with my point of view, I did start creating schemas inside of my mental framework and, and, and filing it, but I felt like this was uh, pretty much overall the point of view. And that is that they acknowledge what has happened. They acknowledge what they have done and they will do, you know, the word repentance means to turn away from. So they have truly repented for what they've done and are trying to turn away from what they, you know, uh, the actions that they've caused, uh, um, not just uh, in racism. Now, of course, racism is alive and well everywhere. And, and uh, you know, especially in Europe, they have so many different, you know, uh, immigrants from different European nations coming in and it's you know uh, would be comparable to the United States here having different states migrate but still there's a culture there's a language so I'm not saying that Germany's perfect in any way at all and saying that they don't have any kind of racism but I would say that at least they have acknowledged what they've done and they're trying their best not to go back so for example even in the cobblestone all the sidewalks are made out of cobblestone there um, they have something called Stoppelsteiner which means just like uh, stumbling stones and uh, what you do is you look down at the, you know, when you're looking down on the ground, when you're walking, you'll see a lot of different just bronze stones in the ground, and they have names in them. And they're the names of the Jews that, uh, yeah, you know, the Nazis had executed or persecuted in some way. And uh, the, the, uh, not only their names, but uh, the, the dates that they, you know, were born and when they died. Um, and it's in the places that they were uh, living at the time. And so, again, that's just one of those things that they have everywhere as a reminder let's not do this again yeah wow interesting interesting yeah um i mean i know you know across the world there's there's all kinds of different ways that people acknowledge their past and there's also many times where people try not to acknowledge their past so right. uh, i was unaware about that and i don't think i could pronounce that name as well as you did i'll have to practice it i'm not going to stumbling try stone that's yes. fine stumbling stone stumbling stone but still it's 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 a way of uh, acknowledging your past you know and we did learn about some things in our past as, as a country like the you know the uh, trail of tears and other atrocities that have happened um so yeah i just uh so just I, to interrupt a little bit sure. I, i'm surprised that i was not aware of juneteenth Wow. Interesting. Oh, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. I mean, yes. Fairly well read, yeah. but I was not aware of that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then for those of you, who, for those of our audience who may not know what Juneteenth is, how would you describe what Juneteenth is? I think it was the day in Texas when the slaves were told that they were liberated. Yes, okay. okay. And I was not aware that it was a celebration, and now I hear that there's a movement to make it a national holiday. So. Yeah, yeah. Considering the role that that played, uh, that date or the whole... Um, movement played. I think that's incredible. 
So. And see, again, that's the power of social media in the positive yeah. um, it, uh, to make us more aware and to actually where, you know, again, you're well read and then, mm -hmm. but you saw that and then you looked into it a little bit more yes. and now you are more aware about that. And uh, that is what I hope that social media can take on as a responsibility to do in a, in a better way, especially in advertising or in, you know, the news. So I, I hope so too, because Roughly three or four years ago, I began to think of democracies as extremely vulnerable against autocracies because of social media, because we're so, we yeah. have so many freedoms. Yes, yes. We can be hacked. Yes. In fact, we, we've talked at length about this. We have a, an episode that we did previously a couple weeks ago where we talked about catastrophe theory and you know, like where, where, what, what, what causes avalanches to happen and, and how that uh, relates to mm -hmm. chaos theory. But moreover, that relates to uh, stability in free societies, like with information. Mm -hmm. um, and we are aware from, from our intelligence reports that, that we have adversaries of, of the United States who have troll farms who are trying to further divide. So that's been very, very uh, interesting. So in fact, I want to make one more comment on this, actually. In, in the past weeks, um, I've shared some things on my social media where it'll be a video clip of a certain e uh, event. We're in this event. It'll be very, very obvious, you know, like, like uh, who's being harassed. Uh, and then I'll see another video clip a couple of weeks later where I saw what led up to it and the paradigm completely changes. So all of a sudden I'm extremely skeptical where did I, you know, originally I thought I was doing a noble thing where, you know, I thought I was, I was sharing a video where it shows one guy harassing another, but then seeing the lead up to that completely changed. Um, so it, it made me feel bad about, about sharing things. So, and I know that that's going to be inevitable to a degree, you know, I think, but I think it's more or less being able to acknowledge that when, you know, the story changes you need to uh, acknowledge that as well. So I'm just putting, putting that, um, that, that out there. So, now, uh, and again, there's uh, one more thing that I want to bring up right now before we dive, uh, we do a deep dive into the article and, and, and we, and we, we uh, talk about the, the tests of implicit bias. Um, there was a conversation that I had with you, Shani, a couple weeks ago that I thought was really cool. The conversation is on the theme of changing paradigms, you know, like, like, like what happens when your paradigm changes. And I think you and I were talking on the app, uh, Marco Polo, and it, it was, it was <laughs> wonderful. I loved hearing about it because there, there's a topic that you have talked about where your, your own paradigm has changed. And I was hoping that you could share with us the stages of that. Um, and the topic was feminism, I believe. Is that right? Yes. Okay, cool. And again, uh, you know, that's one of the things, again, that social media does provide. I can only compare it to music. You know, there used to be a certain way that we listened to music. We would, you know, go and buy a record. We'd bring it home. We'd listen to it, you know, the A and the B side. And, and it was, you know, this ritualistic thing. Now there's music everywhere. And there's so much, so many more possibilities. And we could say that there's worse music, but it's just because there's more music now and more availability. And it's the same with social media and with, um, you know, uh, trains of thought thought as well. Um, I, I love that, you know, rabbit holes is the best thing to say because uh, there's so many different rabbit holes you can get into, you know, on YouTube or anything like that where, you know, if there's a topic that piques your interest um, and, and dive into it. But feminism was one that did not pique my interest. You know, I, I grew up a tomboy. I was always one of the guys, so to see, you know, speak, and uh, I, I didn't really identify with females. I also didn't identify with um, the the genderism of females, and, and you know, I did not like Barbies or any of that other stuff. So I just felt, you know, feminism 
to me, it sounded like a bunch of angry, hairy, burning, you know, women that, um, you know, were going to tell me how to live my life. And uh, then in Germany, I had a very good friend, and uh, she started getting into feminism. And um, she came over one day when we were watching TV with my son. And I don't remember exactly which cartoon it was, but there was a duck and he was surrounded by women and the women were just giving him a massage or something like that. And she mentioned something, I can't even remember what she mentioned, but it was so offensive to me at the time. She just said uh, just how absolutely sexist this was and look, you know, in every cartoon, it's always the guy being surrounded by the girls. It's, you know, this something like that. And I actually asked her to leave because it made me so angry. And I just said, you know, that she was trying to indoctrinate me and my son with her feministic point of view. And um, I felt like, you know, because she was getting really radical, actually, in the time. And uh, I was also studying psychology. I was uh, finishing up my degree there. And um, social uh, psychology was talking about these topics a little bit more. So it just kept kind of coming up. And, you know, once your cognitive is open to it, you just see it everywhere. And suddenly she was right and she had just ruined my point of view everything that i saw was totally at this you know very sexist bias of of you know just a guy surrounded by many females and it was never that the female had a personality or it was just a body you know and so i i started you know reading more and more and again you know joining different feminist groups and 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 just reading on it and the more i read the more i dove into this rabbit hole the angrier I got and I became what I had feared. And I, I was also indoctrinating everybody. I was calling out that sexist, that's this, you know, and I really felt that I was super woke. And, um, then it finally got to a point where I was just angry constantly. And like, I couldn't even have conversations that were, um, you know, uh, even from a knowledgeable point of view anymore, I was just angry. And, and I, even the comment sections, you know, how Facebook used to be a couple of years ago. Well, now it is again, but, um, where, you know, you just are fighting with people for no reason and, you know, just getting really mad at them, attacking them personally because they didn't share your point of view. Um, and, and then finally, I don't know exactly what it was that calmed me down, but I, I finally just felt like it fit and feminism's a part of me, but it isn't this thing that I feel like I have to teach the whole world. I'll have a conversation if anyone's open and willing to have that, but I'm not going to call them out constantly. Oh. Um, unless of course they're absolutely doing something that I need to call out, but that's just, I think, you know, normal. But I, I wish everybody would have an opportunity to just dive into these rabbit holes, try it on. And yes, it's going to make you angry. It's going to make you upset. But eventually the hat will fit and it will become a part of you and it'll be become part of normal life. And if we could all, especially right now, I think the topic is privilege. If anyone that has privilege right now um, in this country is not a, a, a person of color, is, is somebody that is in a certain economic you know, uh, um, privilege, again, privilege doesn't mean you have to feel guilt or horrible or anything like that. It just means acknowledging the fact that you can walk down the street without the same kind of fears or um, same kind of uh, uh, feelings as somebody who isn't in your point of, isn't of privilege in the same way you are. And so again, I'm always, I, I know that we say it, check your privilege, and it almost sounds like a dirty phrase now, but it's not. And I just encourage all of the listeners right now, just for a second, just be aware that, you know, if you're, if you're white or if you're not a person of color and if you, you know, are uh, in somewhat not in poverty, 
um, just think about the fact that you have rights, you have a constitution and law that is, you know, definitely created and curated for you. And uh, because of that, uh, we should be doing something about that to where we can share that with everybody and be aware of that. So I just wanted to bring a case in point. My first language is Espanol. My mother's from Mexico. My dad was from Texas. Uh, neither of them had a high school education. And so to get to where I'm at, I'm a senior physicist at the, for the Air Force, has been a lot of hard work. But because I look like a white guy, I hear, less now than in the past, I hear the racism in the military more, more in the past than now. And my daughter, she is on this rocket ride. She's a beginning junior in science at, in California. She's going to go nice. all the way to her PhD. Through her, her uh, my wife's side, her father's a leading medical physicist. She's been, since a junior high school kid, uh, coddled into the sciences, been all over the world, presented. And, and she is aware of that distinction of her zip code and her mom and her dad's paycheck and how just on the other side of Albuquerque, those kids don't have that. I, I think I'm a freak. I <laughs> fight and I press and, I, and I've gotten to where I've gotten to. But that doesn't mean, you know, Republican friends say you made it. That doesn't mean that the average kid who might end up in science can overcome the barriers the way I did. Absolutely. I, yeah. And I'm glad that you were able to. But again, it, it shouldn't have to be that kind of a struggle, you know, it, and it is. And again, one of the things is, uh, I just feel like for me as a, as a, I am also half Hispanic, but I, I pass as white. So I don't have to face these racisms. And, and I understand that as a privilege. And uh, I, I don't want anyone to feel guilty. doesn't mean that white people don't also have struggles in life, but they don't have the same struggles. I don't wake up afraid that I'm going to encounter anything that day. Yeah, I know I've gotten a few speeding tickets in my life. I've had some sports cars. I have never felt afraid. I have to, this, is, this, this sucks. It'll be over in 15 minutes. Right. And then I'll pay my, pay my ticket. Yes. I have one experience with feeling afraid. One. This is an interesting one. So obviously, I'm also very, well, I'm very, very white. I'm entirely white. I'm, I, well, I think I have a You're very... You're kind of pink. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of pink. This is true. This is true. Okay. I want to tell you guys about the one single experience in my entire life that, that, that uh, I did feel afraid. So uh, I uh, have always been very, very into the arts and real creative and real into making movies. Um, and there was a time that I was in my young 20s, actually, and I was with a bunch of filmmakers here in the state of New Mexico uh, in, in sort of recent years under a previous governor, um, um, Governor Richardson, I believe, uh, he put some incentives for films to be made here in in, uh, New Mexico. And so so we've had an influx of actors uh, who who are here. In fact, what are some of the films that have been um, filmed here? I think the Transformers, the, the... the uh, early ones Terminator Salvation I believe that was a big one way back when uh, mm-hmm. I don't know some recent well Breaking Bad of course um, anyways I had a group of friends who worked on film crews and we wanted to make a movie we wanted to intentionally make a really bad B movie a, a B science fiction movie just cheesy as all nice. get out so we made some really bad costumes and we made a tinfoil uh, alien ship that we were going to have with an obvious string and, and all kinds of stuff and we, we uh, wanted to film a scene out in, out in the woods and we didn't have any woods near us but there was a little uh, uh, an, uh, an arroyo that was close enough so we went out there and we filmed and I had some ridiculous makeup on I don't remember what, what it was uh, I, I just 
I, I was supposed to be some kind of an, an outer space guy. We, we were just having a ridiculous good time. Um, after we wrapped, we went to a local restaurant and we were eating and we decided because we were feeling bold, we went in full costume. We didn't change, we didn't take off our makeup at all. Uh, and I was sitting down uh, and we were eating and then all of a sudden uh, we were approached by a police officer who very politely asked if we could join him and we said absolutely you know so we, we went with him and then outside there was a partner who who told us to sit down and don't say a word we we did we were shocked I was like what what what's going on and I said um, um, excuse me officer quiet you know and and I didn't know what was like I felt like I had I'd done something wrong uh, we were we weren't told a thing a thing we were just told to sit there and I was like okay so now everyone in the restaurant can see that we're being detained here obviously we look ridiculous we're dressed in alien makeup or whatever um well we then found out from his boss his boss came and allowed us to all go free and the cop who was very strict with us was just deadpan silent you know he didn't apologize he didn't acknowledge it he didn't do anything but we were sitting there with our we weren't allowed to talk we weren't allowed to move we were being detained like criminals what had happened was there were some um, there was an older lady who saw us near this ditch and there was some graffiti. She reported us as doing the graffiti. We weren't doing the graffiti. We were filming a movie. Um, <laughs> all I can say is that we looked different. I didn't look like from some, you know somebody from around there. I had ridiculous makeup on. I looked like maybe you know like kiss makeup or insane clown posse makeup or something like that. And uh, the way I was treated was terrifying it was scary so so that's the one experience where i've been treated in a way that i didn't feel like i deserved where i acknowledge that not looking like everybody else is probably why that was the case so right. terrifying whew, terrifying but that at least gave me a unique perspective you know so yes. so i know what it's like when you're when you're different than the usual um, and, and people treat you differently, so. Exactly, again, we feed into what you were already talking about, the implicit bias, that um, it, again, these people, all of us are, we socially construct these mental schemas inside of our head to take in all of the incoming stimuli and create these mental frameworks. And if any slight thing fits to what we had already been taught or already felt, um, then it just gets filed away and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And again, I, I've tried to think about it. If there's a person from a different race that you've been told does a certain thing or acts a certain way, and you walk down the street, they look at you, they're probably thinking about, you know, what bills they have to pay later or something else, but they are staring at you doing it. You might think, oh, they're staring at me because they want to hurt me or they want to rob me or something like that. And then it just feeds into that schema. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, that is the problem in itself with racism is not being aware that we even have those and those biases. And I think the more that we're aware of them, the more that we discuss them and have open places where we are allowed to discuss them and, and hear different points of view about that, then we can dive into these rabbit holes and we're allowed to try on different hats and see, oh, okay, I understand now that you just, you yeah. have the empathy now of understanding what it feels like to wake up as a person of color in America today. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I think what you said, self-awareness is key. And I'm the oldest one here. I'm 54 yeah. years old. So I remember the the feelings that our country had for 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 homosexuals yes yeah. yes and i had those uh, repulsions yeah because well that's what everyone had yep absolutely and it was a feat it was just all negative and today 
I, I, I don't think I have those anymore. And I worked with an Air Force captain who's now a major who created a local military chapter of, of, of military folks that are, that are homosexual. I don't feel those biases anymore. I, my mom and, and I, when my, my dad went to the Vietnam War, we were stuck in California, and that was the hippies' time, 68, 69. Mm-hmm. So black hippies and white hippies, they were all scary. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, I remember the racism about blacks. It, it, it has evolved. So, but I think I've always been a, a person who's self-aware, and I've seen myself change, and I, and, I always, and I wonder why I had those biases, probably because of what you said. They were reinforced back then. Oh, totally. I mean, check out any 80s movie that we loved. Now, right. if we watch it, it's repulsive because of the views and the viewpoints. I mean, they're not repulsive necessarily. Well, no, like, but... like Blazing Saddles, maybe. Yes. Is it repulsive, or is it a way to look historically to go, wow, look at us back then? I don't know. I'm thinking more like the John Hughes type movies. Okay, um, I you know, I, I don't know if you've seen, you know, 16 Candles, but I watched, um, I rewatched 16 yeah, I Candles recently and it is full of sexism. It's full of racism, okay. but it's good to be aware that that's who we were then. That's who the social construction and how much the dialogue is furthering. Mm-hmm. However, we are still so far behind. Right, yes. Yep. yep. I will tell you this. Uh, one of my heroes uh, was Gandhi, and uh, I studied him, oh gosh, uh, so much in college. I watched that movie so many times, and I wrote so many reports on him and people who came after him. And uh, of course, it came it, it came to light probably eight years after I first began studying about Gandhi and, and his life that he also was racist in some in, in some degree. Uh, well, I shouldn't say in some degree. That's that's for that's not for me to decide. But he has in his writing, he he was he wrote especially d- disparagingly about people who were darker than he was, you know, and he compared his treatment to those who were darker, like. How dare they treat me like, you know, folks who are darker? He didn't use those words. I, I realized that. But then it, it, you know, I then think, um, is it okay for me to say, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, in, in, in this term? We're human and we, we are flawed and we are trying very, very hard to overcome this and be aware of this. And, you know, if your attitude is shifted about homosexuals, then, you know, I, I, I think, is it a fair assumption to say perhaps Gandhi's attitude would have shifted when he realized that he was doing exactly what he was um, standing against? So, right. you know, it's tough. It's tough. We're and human. it's always with the times. And yep. again, I, I think what's interesting about bias, and we said we were going to mention this for yes. sure, is that we all have it. Yep. And, we just need to be more and more aware of it. One of the things I, that always annoy me is the, say, the saying, it is better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Well, there's no way to prove that yeah. because that's only from a bias because either you've loved and you know what it feels like and you'll never know what it felt like to not love or you've never loved and you never knew what it felt like to have loved and lost. Interesting. I've never heard that before. That's like a, wow, we always talk about the limits of knowability and that's a, a, a great example, actually. So Definitely a good example. Cool. Thanks for sharing that that so without further ado should we dive into uh, this week's um topic and that is an implicit bias test so before we begin uh, as i had said earlier there was an article that was shared i think last week well by the time we were filming this episode from uh, pbs news hour it was also shared from nova and this was actually a reshare from a website called and i will pull this right up this will be in the episode show notes uh, it's called uh, knowablemagazine.org. That was the original source. Uh, this uh, particular article it was published by a uh, Betsy Mason on the 4th of June of this year. And in this uh, article, she does uh, an interview with psychologist Anthony Greenwald. And the topic of it is implicit bias. Also heavily mentioned is an, impl- an, an implicit bias test that is created by Anthony Greenwald and his collaborators. So there's an actual 
test. Uh, there's an attempt to make it as scientific as possible, as is the nature of science, uh, in order to, to test for implicit biases. We've alluded to this earlier in this episode, but I don't think we've directly addressed it. An implicit bias would be something that you're not aware of. So, you know, if you're making a choice about something, then... Uh, you know, and you're not aware of a bias, but it still exists, you know, uh, there are people who are still negatively impacted by it, and you could not be aware of it. So uh, it's it's just very, very interesting that, that um, uh, Dr. Greenwald here and his collaborators have, have, have tried to figure out a way to detect that. The actual test itself is not without its critics, and we will be discussing the criticisms of the test. Also, some of the interesting results so far. There's so much literature on this that I find it very, very difficult to actually do a summary of the literature or the criticisms. So uh, for the purposes of this episode, I'll just talk about what's in the article as well as where uh, you can find um, summaries and also other journals, or also other journals, including criticisms of it. So... Um, let's talk about for a minute, uh, uh, some examples of implicit bias. What I liked about this article is it has clear, unambiguous examples of implicit bias. And, you know, it has from, from a variety of studies. So according to this article, there's examples with hiring managers. It said here that hiring managers are less likely to invite obese applicants for an interview. Also, people see older workers as less valuable. There's also biases against Arab Muslim men influencing hiring decisions in Sweden. So this is stuff that has been studied and, you know, that has been documented. Also, those, there's citations here in the article for that as well. With respect to law enforcement, uh, a study found that police in New York City stopped black and Hispanic pedestrians more often than white pedestrians. And a study in Oakland, California found that black men were far more likely to be handcuffed, searched, or arrested than anyone else when stopped by police. Uh, I really like how these are listed as pretty black and white examples. So it certainly exists, and we can certainly acknowledge it, that it exists. It's clear in our records. Then the question becomes, well, do I have implicit biases myself? And that's where we can talk a little bit about this test here. So this is where I will go ahead and go to the Wikipedia page. Actually, mm-hmm. um, b- before I start, did you both get a chance to read uh, the PBS article? I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. yeah. Interesting. Any, any preliminary thoughts before we dive into the um, Wikipedia page? That you should go from that article to the Wikipedia page, which is much more extensive. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, I agree. So that, that'll also be in the citations. The Wikipedia page is thorough, so, so very thorough. Okay, so the Wikipedia page starts off by saying, what is the IAT? called the Implicit Association Test. And actually, let me go ahead and share my screen um, with you, you. And you. You've got a screen as well. Uh-huh. So it says, the Implicit Association Test, and again, I'm basically reading from a my own summary that I created from the Wikipedia page, is a measure designed to detect the strength of a person's subconscious association between mental representations of objects in memory. It's commonly applied to assess implicit stereotypes held by test subjects, such as unconsciously associating black names with words consistent with black stereotypes. The test has been used to detect a wide variety of biases. Some of these include biases in racial groups, as previously alluded to, gender, sexuality, age, and religion, as well as assessing self-esteem. So it has all kinds of applications here. Um, The IAT was first introduced in 1998, so it's over 20 years old now by, as said earlier, Dr. Greenwald, also his collaborators, Debbie McGee and Jordan Schwartz. 
Uh, the IAT is not without controversy. There is some controversy about the, vali the validity, the reliability, and whether the test results are accurate representations of implicit bias. And we will talk about the actual controversies later in the episode. I also have a citation on those. <laughs> Okay, so what you guys are all wondering, what I was certainly wondering about is how on earth does this test even work? How, how can you test whether a person is biased or not? So this test is a computer-based test. Shani, because I'm tired of hearing my own voice, would you like to read a little bit about how this test is done? Certainly. Well, the IAT requires that users rapidly categorize two different target concepts with an attribute. For example, the concepts male and female with the attributes logical, such that a faster response are interpreted as more strongly associated in memory than slower responses. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, in uh, in this test, you you know you, you there's um you have the the opportunity to, to uh, select choices and you, you uh, categorize things and uh, they they measure your response times and it's assumed that you know if, so if something let, has let a, me pantomime sure. you do pleasant unpleasant on your screen and then the word suffering pops up and you have to click right or left to categorize that. Yeah. And yeah, then yeah. layer that to black white pleasant unpleasant. And the word happiness pops up, and then you have to right-click or left-click. That's, yep. that's yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, and again, the the, the baseline that that they're that, that this test um, captures is uh, your response times, with the assumption that a, a quicker response time is is you know uh, shows that you're comfortable with something, or or if, if it's a slower response time, that might be an indicative. And of they the try points. to correct for that by flipping it left to right. Yes, yes, that's a really good point, actually. Yes, so so the it's you know every attempt is made at eliminating <laughs> biases in the bias test. Absolutely. Uh, again, there's a lot more details here in the article itself. We'll go ahead and keep reading here. Uh, I'll read this next one. But it one. is an important point because I'm one of those test takers that get very nervous. And if it's be able to swip, you know, you swap over left to right, then it takes away from that confounding variable of maybe having test anxiety. I very much agree with that. And yeah. I researched that 70 to 95% of us are right-handed. Uh, wow. So I've got to take that into account. Maybe they did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Actually, actually, yeah, you know, I haven't even read the left-handed or the right, the right-handedness. Of course, we're not subject matter experts in this. We're yeah. just journalists who are presenting on this topic. So, you know, it's just for for uh, for your listening pleasure and edification, and for you to learn more about. Okay, so the IAT is thought to measure implicit attitudes, and again, we're going to quote directly here from the article introspectively unidentified or inaccurately identified traces of past experience that mediate favorable or unfavorable feeling, thought, or actions towards social objects. That's how they define implicit attitudes here. Uh, then says that in research, the IAT has been used to develop theories to understand implicit cognition. Forgive the jargon here. I realize it is a little bit jargon heavy, but we'll get through it. Um, now, implicit cognition is defined as cognitive processes of which a person has no conscious awareness. This is the important one here because we talk about implicit biases. Do we have biases that we're not aware of? And do we treat people differently based on arbitrary criteria? Uh, these processes may include memory, uh, perception, attitudes, self-esteem, and stereotypes. Alrighty, Shani, would you like to read this last bit here? Certainly, because the IAT requires that users make a series of rapid judgments, researchers believe that the IAT scores may also reflect 
reflect attitudes which people are unwilling to reveal publicly. The IAT may allow researchers to get around the difficult problem of social desirability bias, and for that reason, it has been used extensively to assess people's attitudes toward commonly stigmatized groups, such as African Americans and individuals who identify as homosexuals. Yeah. And actually, there is a link in the uh, article that we'll post from, uh, I'll make sure I say this one correctly, since we've got so many articles here. The article from um, both PBS NewsHour as well as uh, Noble Magazine uh, has a link where you can take the test yourself and uh, see what uh, results uh, you get. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. So reading about the setup is uh, interesting. Um, in the interview, it goes on to talk about some of the preliminary results and uh, differences in demographics. This is what really, really interested me. I don't know if you guys got that far, but um, there's actually a significant difference in the, the population of uh, white people who took the, t the test and African-Americans. Um, when I just read this, my, my assumption was that let's just, you know, assume, for example, that all of us have an implicit bias toward what we're, we are already we are f familiar with. So if we are, you know, white, we'd be comfortable with what, we, what would be considered traditional white names or other white associations. The same goes for anybody else in any group, you know, saying, you know, if you're a Korean or East Indian, you would probably be most comfortable with uh, names and associations that are typically from that demographic. What I found fascinating is that although a bias was detected um, uh, in, in white Americans who took this test, there was not a bias in the African-American population that was taken. Why do y'all suppose that's the case? I mean, I guess that that's probably assuming you understand the results, which mm -hmm. we should be careful about. Well, I also wouldn't want to speak um, for anyone. So this is just coming from an empathetical point of view. Um, I could just assume that um, a lot of people of color are taught at a very young age in development and their worldview and being able to understand who they are in the world. Um, you know, they're taught about uh, their own, uh, who they are. So they know uh, what they're going to have to face, how people are going to react to them and because of that maybe they're also more used to having these stereotypical Caucasian names mm -hmm. being thrown around and also again uh, social constructionism everything on television and everything in the media is based on Caucasian uh, mm -hmm. usually yeah yeah I have not had a chance yet to read what the, what the literature itself says. Uh, one would assume that they've thought of that, perhaps. But uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. Of course, it goes without saying that as journalists, we're just we're just talking here. We, you know, I'm not trying to offer a, a conclusive uh, answer to this. But still, I thought it was very uh, very interesting. Um, one of my friends said, I think uh, very very similar to what you what you said. Um, my friend had uh, had talked about uh, a, it could be just a power thing. Like like if if uh, white Americans are considered, you know based on on biases in our society you know like the the um if we are if we hold the most power that's also it could right. be why so yeah, yeah I thought it was no, definite exposure and discourse um again that's uh, the point of everything right now is to have more exposure to give uh, more voices and um possibilities of storylines right now so that we have the discourse for this um again going back to the feminism thing but uh, i think that i believe yeah, i was born in 1981 and i believe that i'm one of the first groups of females that were taught that they could be anything that they 
wanted to be and not just homemakers. Mm -hmm. And because of that, now we have storylines and we have uh, the ability to, you know, all of these new TV shows popping up with our point of view. And this is where we need to create a platform so that there are the many voices in this world that they have their chance to speak their point of view and that that discourse rolls over and shapes our worldview as well. Yeah. Now, this article goes on uh, uh, to, to, to talk about what we can do about implicit bias. Now, here is where it gets really interesting. Uh, in this article, it talks about this implicit bias or the, this, uh, uh, the IAT, the implicit bias test, uh, is used very, very often these days in corporate trainings. Uh, however, there's some issues with that. Uh, if you take it only one time, there's a lot of concern about the statistical significance. We'll get to that in a little while. But also, it's not really clear right now that just being aware of them is enough to really do anything about them. And the article doesn't actually... Uh, prescribe anything in terms of what to actually do about it. That's not to be confused with saying nothing can be done about it, but uh, it says that there's not enough studies to address how do you effectively mitigate these issues. So I have been part of the military culture since I was born. I was born on an Air Force base. I have been in the Air Force. I have been in the Department of Defense in the uh, military industrial complex. And the military today represents roughly 1% of our population. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. And they constantly have days of we we take the day off or half the day off to discuss feminism or 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 homosexuality or i wasn't aware of that yeah it's constant training it's it's quarterly training it's it's an we have commander's call where the commander you know they cover once a month they'll cover all the topics we constantly are told where to go for help what the legal tools are it is constant 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 training computer-based training Mm. role-based training Unfortunately, it's 1% of the population. Wow. If we can maybe borrow from the military, Mm -hmm. and they were the first to unify the races in the 1940s, Mm -hmm. 47, I believe, maybe we can, you know, take some lessons learned from that. Absolutely. And again, that's this discourse. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, one of the things that I keep telling everybody in the state of the world right now is I don't know, and I'm not saying please do everything you can, but for sure what you can do is you can affect your own circle. And so if you're talking about this within your family, to your children, with your, you know, uh, your your spouse or your loved ones, if you're openly, you know, uh, just trying to dive deeper into all of this, uh, it can only get better. It can, the dialogue can be more easy and I, I do believe that we can start seeing other points of view then yeah yeah absolutely absolutely yeah um yeah <laughs> that's 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 uh, for, for sure um there's a lot in this article in fact i i enjoyed every one of these articles this the the the, the first article I, I i loved how not only does it talk about the iat test itself but it also has the um the uh, statistics on implicit bias in all the fields. So, you know, it, it's clear that it exists. And of course, you know, it, it's very open about the fact that it's not clear how, how to address it. One thing that was interesting I found in this article is um, it gives a link to take the test, but I didn't find any information in this article about criticisms of the test. You mm-hmm. will find criticisms of the test in the Wikipedia. Now, here's why okay. I, bring, I, I bring this up. As somebody, you know, if, if anyone is trying to do better, they're trying to be made aware of these things and they want to take this test, they might, you know, think, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. And then they'll, they'll find the, uh, you know, they'll go through the test and the results will be shown to, to them. And immediately they might either think, oh, I'm not, I, I, I have no implicit biases. Or they'll think, oh, wow, I have really bad implicit biases. <laughs> 
The issue is that this test uh, is not statistically significant if you take it one time or if you take it in any form of a, like if, uh, if, if you had a rough morning that day, uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of confounding variables that can yes. uh, affect this test. And that's what the critics have pointed out. In fact, I even Google searched. Yes, that's how I did it. I went to Google. Um, uh, criticisms of the IAT test. And I'd like to show you one of the things that, that uh, popped up here. Um, I will include this in the show notes as well. Um, let's see if I can find it. So in general, the criticism is that the measure, the IAT itself is very sensitive to the social context in which it's taken. In fact, people's scores can change from one test to another. So you take it once, take it again later in the day, you might have a completely different result. Take it when you're tired or when you're stressed or when you first um, wake up and you might have different results. So what does that say? Now, according to Texas A&M University psychologist Hart Blanton, I hope I said his name right. It looks like. <laughs> yes, to do, directly quote him, it's not as malleable and moot, and not and it's not as reliable as a personality trait. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I meant to copy and paste a quote directly from him, <laughs> and I, I copied and pasted the wrong thing. You're going to have to forgive me on that one. <laughs> Let me see if I can find it here. So while you're looking for that, let me just remind the audience that it was cognitive scientists in the early 20th century that advanced statistics and designed most of the modern statistical tools, and including a field called design of experiments. Yeah. Cool. I've, I've actually heard in the past very, very often that there's a lot of, crit of criticisms of psychology, especially early psychology, so in, in, in terms of how, how much of a science it actually is. And I've had, I've had professors of mine argue, well, I don't think it's a science. I think it's an art. You know? so, uh, but again, the fact that they're trying to use statistics and trying their best to make it as rigorous as possible. And about a test taker having a bad day, again, from the Air Force, yeah. they say we have an F-15 and we have a, a, a pilot and she's had a bad day and she's testing a new piece of technology. Yeah. And she's, she's using these Likert charts to, to go, yeah, it sucked on a scale of one to 10. He, this cognitive psychologist I worked with, he has follow-up questions like, well, how many times did, 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 did it, because of it where it's oriented, did, the sun, did it catch the sun and cause glare? Mm -hmm. How many times did the keyboard, did you fat finger it because the keys are, aren't laid out? Right. So you have to, if you go, it sucked one, you know, on a scale of one to 10, and then your, your evidence based on counts. Well, you didn't fat finger it. It, it identified the targets correctly. You know, it, that's a way to increase the reliability of social science. He calls it evidence-based, uh, you know, leak our chart in science. So. Cool. Well, very good. And I just want to acknowledge your debiasing also, even uh, through the discourse right now. My visuals, you yes. said she as the pilot she, yes, and I like that very much. <laughs> cool. Very good. Very good. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, so I actually have the article right here. This will also be in the show notes, and I'm going to read directly from the article here. Uh, the article itself is from APA.org, uh, and it's, um, let me see if I can find the actual authors here by Beth Azar, I believe A-Z-A-R. This was published a while back. So this criticism is from 2008. And also, uh, as a researcher, I know that you want to look for the most recent criticism. So I'd be curious if there's an update since 2008 on this topic. I'm sure there is. Nonetheless, I'll go ahead and uh, read this for, for the sake of conversation. This journal is from page 44, and the title of it is IAT, Fad or Fabulous. Um, and I'll go ahead and read... Uh, directly from here about, uh, from one of the critics. One of the IAT's most vocal critics is Texas A&M University psychologist Hart Blanton. He worries that the IAT has reached fad status among researchers without the proper psychometric assessment to warrant its current uses in the public domain. Blanton has published several articles detailing what he considers the IAT's many psychometric failings. Um, 
But if he has to highlight one weakness, it's the way the test is scored. The IAT measures people's associations between concepts. So the classic race IAT compares whether you're quicker to link European Americans with words associated with concepts bad, you know, like bad in quotations, and African Americans with, with words related to good or vice versa. Your score is from negative 2.0 to 2.0, and anything above 0.65 or below negative 0.65 indicates a strong link. And according to Blanton, there's no single study showing that above or below that cutoff uh, for people that they, um, the behavior differs in any way. Actually, let me read that one more time. There's not a single study showing that above and below that cutoff, people differ in any way based on that score. So <laughs> you could score that way, and there's no study saying, okay, so can you definitively say you are biased? No. No, it's, it's, it's arbitrary. Um, however, that's not the only criticism. And I'll, I'll get to that in a second here. It, it, it then goes on to say... Um, Let's see here. Blinton views the feedback as a, di as a diagnosis and wants it to be held to the same standards as any clinical diagnosis tool. Um, Norsec, Greenwald, and their colleagues, uh, I'm going to skip ahead a bit, um, view it differently. They view the feedback as an educational device to get people to think about their implicit biases and how they color their interactions in the world. Okay. So according to this article, the researchers view this as a tool, but not a definitive diagnosis. So if the purpose of this test is to get you to think about things, then it certainly might be useful. Excellent. But if it's to actually to say you have biases definitively, well, that is not quite empirical. Uh, you know, that's not quite uh, uh, solid science, shall we say, according to this um, criticism. There's other criticisms. There's other criticisms as well, including it's not as malleable as mood and not reliable as a personality trait. Um, you know, and and it it, it varies. You know. For, it varies based on when you take it. So uh, there's a lot of noise involved as well. Uh, you can read about more criticisms on the link, but uh, you know, it's just, uh, we're, we're trying to be open and honest about the uh, uh, shortcomings of these tests, but also offer them as a tool for discussion and for self-awareness. So I do wish that more of that was discussed in the article that was shared by PBS um, NewsHour and NOVA. Um, so I just want to bring this in tangentially. I, this is a story I'm tracking. I'm very much interested in artificial intelligence and developing for the military. Um, I followed an article. It was, it was uh, updated on 11 January 2018. It's from uh, Wired. And it says, when it comes to gorillas, Google Photos remain uh, blocked. Facial recognition on, you know, tag, tag my friends was coming back with black people gorillas. Ah, yes. And that as a problem that Microsoft has had, Google has had, Facebook has had. And that's interesting because where are these biases, these artificial intelligence biases creeping in? Is it the operators who design the software? Or is it just, I don't know, is it the physics of that? It's just, just something interesting that biases are, are even, we have to hit the brakes on AI on certain problems right now because they are definitely angling in a very biased way. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's funny, you would think Without knowing, you know, any more more details. Well, AI, it's got to be non-biased, right? Right. Not the case. Not the case. So we should actually do a deep dive episode on exactly what causes the bias in AI. So the solution that Google is doing is they've just removed the possibility that a gorilla would be linked. They've removed that physically, not through the AI. Okay. Huh. Huh. Wow. <laughs> That's a, a fascinating topic in of itself. So yeah. Yes. Maybe for an, another episode. Mm -hmm. So. 
Yeah. Well, that's that's all I have uh, for this episode. Um, whole lot more information in the show notes. Is there any, anything else that you all got from, from, from either article? It's a fascinating field. It's way outside my field. I stick to simple things like physics. <laughs> simple. I love it. Yeah, I love that. Well, awesome. again, I think that it's just, it's a step in the right direction, but uh, we... It, It'll be bias. It, but again, I, I feel that we just have to be more and more aware of the possible biases that we do carry and implicit biases and the way that we see the world and be open to changing that um, brain network inside of ourselves and dive deeper into these rabbit holes. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love every time you bring it back to diving into rabbit holes. I'm like, yes, that's a that's a, a fun little thing. Yeah. And my takeaway here is, um, you know, I'm, I'm still going to take this test. Um, I, you know, it, I... I wouldn't say avoid it by any means at all. You know, even the uh, cri- even the, the critics here say it's certainly a valuable tool for discussion. So it's it's not a matter of don't take the test, but just be aware of its shortcomings and that it may vary based on on mood or other factors that are considered noise. So um, just uh, understand. Uh, what it is and what it isn't so as always we will have our show notes and other articles in the uh youtube uh link uh in the comment links and uh, if you've got questions for us please send us a question at touring rabbit holes podcast at gmail.com i'll also put a link to our discord server as well you can chat with us there and thank you very much for joining us this has been thank another you, great yeah episode. it was such a pleasure thank you alex thank you gabe thank you everyone well. and you're welcome to stop those Nice. Man, I I, I was weird. Can we just talk all day? I mean, you're fascinating, Alex.